Hey there, boys and girls. It's Ralph Garman, and you're listening to Talking Cod Swallop. Good choice. Hello, everybody. This is Ming Chen from AMC's Comic Book Man. You might know me from the Tell Him Steve Day podcast and the I Sell Comics podcast. Listen, I love podcasting. I love talking, but what I really love doing is talking cod swallow. Hey, I'm Alicia Witt. I'm Daniel Portman from Game of Thrones. I play Podrick Payne. I'm Ellipses, and you're listening to the talking... Okay, <laughs> I'm Mark Bernard, and you're listening to the Talking Cod Swallop podcast. Hey, man, it's Kevin Smith, Silent Bob, whose voice you were never used to hearing in the 90s until I started opening it up, man. And that's because I'm a podcaster, and you're listening to a podcast, Talking Cod Swallop, right here, man. And welcome to this week's Talking Codswallop. Now, on this week's episode, I'm flying solo. Gemma and Joanna are unable to join, but they are very upset they can't because we've got a wonderful, brilliant guest. If you want to talk about comics, you go to one of the best who we can talk to about. And I've been incredibly lucky, gifted on this one, to be able to talk to Mr. Timothy Fling. So, Timothy, thank you so much for coming on. How are you today? James, I'm doing great, and thanks so much for having me on. I look forward to chatting with you today. I very much look forward to hearing from you. And while we will not have a visual thing, I just want to say for the listeners, Timothy's looking very well, very healthy and relaxed. <laughs> it's, this this will be a good episode. Great. So one of the first things I always like to say to anybody when I'm talking to them, Timothy, is, well, I, start, I do like icebreaker questions. My my first question would be, and I, I don't lie to the listeners, I do send them out in advance because I do not want to just spring things on people because it always seems a bit unfair. So I, got, I always like you have a, you, you had a look at them first. But the question I want to ask is, so your numbers come up on the Powerball thing, the, the, the big lottery win. What's the first thing you would do? What's the first thing you would buy? You know, I would love to, I'm a little bit of a musician and a songwriter, of course, I love writing comics, but if money was no object, I think I might jump squarely back into music and spend my days writing songs. Okay, so would you buy any specific instrument? What do you play? What would you? Uh, By you- trade, I'm a I'm a bassist. I've been a bassist for well, I'll tell you, I got a bass for my 15th birthday. So what's that? About 40 years I've been playing. I'm actually a fairly accomplished player. But, you know, bass, of course, is a little bit more of an accompaniment, more so than a solo instrument. So the best thing for me to do is to get paired up with some talented people, you know. But what I really have been enjoying lately, and it's funny, sometimes I don't know I enjoy it until I actually try it. We've been writing our own theme songs for the Kickstarters. And these are often very short uh almost like a jingle, like an advertising jingle. And what we try to do, we try to compose a melody that is uh, somehow representative of the Kickstarter material. And then we work through the various parts until it sounds like a a theme song. And by theme song, I mean, they have a little bit of a, like a cinematic feel to them. If you like movie soundtracks, you'd probably like these themes. Yeah, I'm, I am one of the people who is like addicted to movie soundtracks. Oh, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> it's a real, it's a see when i was younger it was never something that i think people really sort of bought into or the people i was friends with i didn't know and i do i mean like my first big soundtrack purchases were things like uh the james bond film the living daylights because i'd oh. wanted that soundtrack since yeah. dot and it was when that properly came out on cd yeah. it opened the floodgates and you know batman stuff superman stuff yeah. Uh, yeah, it's like a, I think it's like a, possibly an addictive prop, uh, problem. <laughs> I know I bought my, uh, I had bought my first uh, soundtrack album was, uh, it was the Star Wars, the first movie. And man, I was just engrossed in Star Wars. I was a little kid. I was 12 years old. And, you know, the soundtrack was in a double album. And I remember you could open up the album and it had a double page uh, spread of art and photos. And I believe there was even a poster included in with the album. And that was the first time that I started to kind of marry the music and the culture and the, you know, it all kind of goes together, right? Mm. And that's the sort of stuff, I mean, you hit the nail on the head there and the things that I love, which is when, certainly for me, going to the Living Daylights, when I opened it up, you were seeing pictures 
in the right. spread that I'd never ever seen, even though I knew the film, I'd never ever seen stuff like that before. And I was like, wow, you know, this background stuff um, that, that really it adds to the whole experience. And of course, when you're listening to a soundtrack, you get the wonderful flashbacks to see in the film. So I, I totally, uh, I totally understand and dig that. So the next question I'm going to ask, and I think looking in the background, I might, oh, and we've kind of already touched on this, I might have an idea of what your answer is. Uh, so as a comic book guy, generally we fall into a camp of it's going to be one or the other, although we, we generally will cross over and we like both, but who is it, Batman <laughs> or Superman and why? Yeah, thanks for letting me answer this. I, I love questions like these, and I'm definitely a Batman guy, and I think I will uh, answer that in a way that some people do. I think Superman is a great character, particularly in his early years, but a little bit hard to write and a little bit hard to uh, embrace because he doesn't have much in the way of weakness. And the thing I like about Batman, he has tons of flaws and he's a very uh, he's a very flawed character and he does it anyway. And now, of course, he's the super millionaire. So, well, you got that. But, you know, as far as, you know, his detective skills, his martial arts, these are all crafts that he has honed over the years where Superman really all he had to do was crash land on the planet and he was ready to go. (laughs) Yeah, I once watched a comedy sketch. uh, I think it's called Pete Holmes did the ever cross, you know, before Batman versus Superman came out. And he's going like, you know, I trained, I did all this because I don't, you know, get my powers from a different, he used a very strong swear word, but a different atmosphere. (laughs) Yeah, there's a great, there's a great panel in one of the new books. And I'm going to probably mess it up now that I try to explain it. But it's Batman and Superman, and they're each talking about each other. And, um. You know, Batman says about Superman, he says, well, look, uh, Superman, the entire world has rejected him. He's basically an alien. He's he's an alien, and yet he chose to help us anyway. Superman is a better man than I am. That's what Batman says. And then, of course, Superman turns around, he looks at Batman, he says, you saw your parents killed. You have every reason to hate the world, and you help us anyway. Batman, you are a better man than I am. And I thought that was a very neat uh, uh, division between the two characters. That certainly is. I mean, I fall into the same sort of camp as you on this because, okay, Superman is great. He's interesting. He's been around a long time. He's interesting. My father's favorite. But there is something about Batman that really resonates with me. Whether it says something is wrong with my psyche, I don't know. But the, <laughs> the, the kind of scarred, damaged element of Batman, the fact that he's so dark. And I right. guess... As weird as it sounds, it was something I remember Mark Hamill saying in an interview that he liked Batman because as a kid he thought, well, you know, there's a relatability there. Maybe if I did all the training things, I could be like that. Put aside the fact he's a billionaire. (laughs) It's it's crazy that Batman wouldn't be dead after about an hour. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. (laughs) And Um, he has all those great, he has all the beautiful toys, too. He has the the Batcave and the, yeah, all the Batmobile and his gadgets. That's very true. That's a, I, I've yeah. always been a little bit of a sci-fi guy, and I'll tell you, I think Batman is a little bit more sci-fi than Superman, and I'll tell you why. Superman, of course, is an alien in outer space, and he can travel through space, but Batman has all the cool ships and gadgets and planes, and he has more things. You know, he has more of a more of a tool belt, I guess I'd say, of his arsenal. That's, that's a very good. Yeah. Again, that's something I've not thought of. But yeah, the sci-fi element is very, very strong with Batman. If you think about all the things he has. God, yeah, that's true. That's very true. Where Superman, of course, he is a sci-fi character. I'm not disputing mm. that. But essentially, we get just him. Like, there's no super plane, or he doesn't have a Kryptonian gun that he shoots at anyone. You know what I mean? Those kind of things, I think, help sell the, the sci-fi elements, the, the little trinkets that you bring with you. That's one to de- that's going to I'm going to be very interested to see how uh, our listeners view that who are into comics. So, yeah, that that will create an interesting, healthy debate. Now, you obviously mentioned that one of the things you do is you're you're a musician. So and as a bass player, now this is going to get interesting because 
this is this is again we've done the big division thing of Superman and Batman, but who who will use your favorite, the Stones or the Beatles? You know, I love this one too. Obviously, I love both. I've been into music for many many years, but in my uh, unvarnished opinion, I think the Beatles have eclipsed the, the Stones with their songwriting and their breadth of material. You know, the Stones, obviously, great material, and they kept going for so many years. But you can go back and put on uh, any early Beatles album, and it still feels relevant. Yeah. You know, and think about some of this music is 60, uh, you know, 50, 60 years old. And even like Sgt. Pepper or, I mean, any of them, the material held up very well. I completely agree. And this is always a thing just to give you some insight that it creates amusement with me and Gemma. Gemma is not a fan of Paul McCartney. She likes she she likes music, but as a person, she doesn't seem to like him. I've seen Paul McCartney live twice. It's oh, wow. a major bucket list thing for me. It's like one of the big... Me and my father went to see him, but it was interesting when he talked about the way things hold up with the Beatles, because in Liverpool, they used to have the Matthew Street Festival, which mm. is where you'd have loads of... Tri- it originally started out being a tribute thing to the Beatles, but it became bigger and you have loads of tribute acts. It was all free. Yeah, you'd have various different uh, iterations of the Beatles at different points in the career, people doing tribute bands to them. And my father made the same comment. He said, it's amazing to think that with the, 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 the length of time between when the Beatles were first around and really, you know, at their zenith, that people still listen to it, but it still works. And it, as you said, it still resonates with people. It, it does. And I've noticed something, too, especially among the younger music fans. You know, you put on any of the Beatles uh classic material and the younger people who have never heard of it they go wow that's pretty cool what's that which generally the younger generation doesn't really care for some of that older material so i think there's something basically magical in some of that uh beatles material and i i think that it if you you didn't ask me this question but if i had to pin down what i thought caused that magic i think the the synergy between lennon and mccartney created a uh, a songwriting bond that very few others have been able to copy um there have been other great songwriting teams of course but there's something about that Lennon-McCartney material that just it just is magical. And it's also this strange thing that I was talking to. I mean, my father is the primary person I talked to about the Beatles because it's his youth, and he's a huge fan of them. But I was saying, it, what changed when you look at something like the Beatles is that it isn't just music. We're talking about something that literally has historical significance. Sure. And it must be. But, I mean, if you're McCartney, there must be moments where it, it does kind of like you step out from yourself and look at it. You're thinking, I have shaped history. Right, right. And, you know, I like all genres of music, but there's so many things that would never even have happened if it weren't for the Beatles. Yeah. And not to mention that, you know, they went through a little bit of an experimental stage, right? Not, you know, they started as basically, a you know, a British pop band and they sort of became something much larger than themselves. And they did it by crafting these songs and melodies, which were very different at the time from what other bands were doing. And now, of course, many people over the years have tried to copy the Beatles, obviously. But no one's this is my opinion. I don't think anyone's ever been successful in copying the Beatles. And if I was if I was doing it again, I would try and copy it again. The rock, the ballads, the melody lines, it's it's all gold. But I think it was a little bit of an example. Lennon and McCartney got into a room together and lightning struck. Yep. Now, the problem is I could sit and discuss music with you. <laughs> <laughs> we can do that anytime, James. Yeah. I, I love music. I'm sure you're getting uh, comics. Yeah. is kind of my other thing. I, I love yeah. music. as a It's a deep part of my person. But I would love to do that if you'd ever be up for that. Just have a chat about totally, music. Totally. It would it'd be brilliant to do that. So Count I always in. like brilliant. So I always like to know. Tell me, where do, is it Timothy or Tim, sorry? Which would you prefer? Uh, call me Tim, that's fine. Okay, so Tim, I'm going to ask Tim, where does your story begin? How do you, you know, where where does the, the Tim Fling story start? <laughs> well, you mean as far as writing or some of the other things? Life, life in general. Oh, yeah, what's, yeah. what's your story? What's your, your education youth sort of thing? Uh, gotcha, gotcha. I was born in upstate New York. Um, I still kind of consider myself a New Yorker, but I do live in Pennsylvania now. And I've traveled around a little bit. I've spent some years in Florida, and I also have spent some years uh, living in China uh, over the years. I've spent some time there. 
Uh, my family's uh, – I'm married to a Chinese woman now. Um, so we have a uh, – I'm remarried, and I have a young son. He's 14 years old, and he's about the coolest kid you could ever imagine. As a matter of fact, uh, he takes guitar lessons, and we play together. Thank and you. now the new thing is we write together. We, he likes to work on his scripts. He kind of likes science fiction too. So he's got a couple robot stories we're working on. And sure. I'm all for it. Let me tell you, whenever I talk to a younger person, you know, preteen or any young person really, I just think that their imagination that they have and their creativity, I always wished I had a little bit more of it. So I always listen when a younger person is talking about script ideas. But, I, you know, other than that, my upbringing probably wasn't too interesting. Um, I had originally dropped out of college after my second year to be a musician in a traveling band. This was during the heavy metal years. And I did that for about eight or nine years from probably, well, I can tell you it was 86 to probably 95. And by the way, I love that life. I love music. Um, but at that time, I was getting ready to be, what's, I was about 28, 29 years old. And I started to realize, oh, this isn't really uh, – this is difficult to make money, you know, uh, and what I mean by that is we were traveling around and we had a little bit of backing from a record company and we had a couple anthology records. But to generate a reasonable monthly income, it was challenging for me and I just couldn't put it together. So ever since then, I've worked. I've always had a day job of some kind, worked in sales, have been in finance, um, work a lot in digital services. Uh, I work for a couple of Internet companies. And now finally here, I work at Hakes Auctions in York, PA, and we handle high-end collectibles for the auction market. And my connection to this one is uh, things like we might get a piece of art in and, you know, everybody gathers around it and, like, man, who painted this and what year and this and that. And I'll say things like, well, no, that's not Al Milgram. That's Joe Statton. <laughs> like I usually know who it is right away. So I have kind of that weird skill that's valuable to an auction house. Excellent. Yeah. And then I also uh, for a brief period about uh, – well, roughly about 11 years ago, I was a retail owner of a comic book store, and it was called Planet X Comics, and we sold comics and games and a little bit of art and you know all the fun things that go along with your local comic book store. And I did that about five years, six years, and unfortunately at the time I had sort of a bumpy divorce, so I, I lost the comic book store in the divorce. That ended up being my ex-wife's comic book store, and uh, I said at the time, I said, you know what, I'm going to start writing. I said to myself, I want to do something and to create something that cannot be taken away from me. And I decided to try writing. And uh, the first book I wrote was a, it's a robot uh, comic called Socket. It is a, a, a four-person uh, super team. And I wrote three issues of that. And it was relatively well-received. I took it to comic conventions and things like that. That was kind of like my foot in the door, I guess you'd say. And then after that, I started with the Water Wars series, which you know a little bit about. And I've had a little bit more success with this. And uh, what I mean by that, I had uh, ventured into the Kickstarter territory, which these days, you know, 2021, if you have a great idea and you want to publish a book, you don't have to reach out to publishers and say, please give me money to make my book. You can wade right into Kickstarter and, hey, my name's Tim and I'm making a book and I hope you can join me. And I've had a little bit of success with it, right? This is my third one. All of mine have funded. I know three is still relatively a rookie compared to, you know, you see guys that have done 10, 12, 15 Kickstarters. But it is my goal to I'm going to try and do three Kickstarters a year. And it's how I fund my uh, publishing and printing costs. Generally speaking, I pay all my costs up front for the art, the lettering and all the production costs. And then I try to recoup that from the Kickstarter. The reason I do it that way, I've been following this, and it is a very – well, I'll, I'll be cautious because I don't know who might have done it this way. But it's not the most professional move to have your artists and your letterer work unpaid and say, well, I'll pay you when the Kickstarter comes through. Because my feeling is the Kickstarter does not always come through, and you don't want to have talked to a fellow. Maybe he just illustrated 24 pages, you know, and he's not going to get paid. It's, it's just not fair to the artists in my opinion. So what I do is I pay everyone up front. The book is in the can, as they say, and then I run the Kickstarter. So that way I don't have any delays for backers and, you know, that kind of thing. My books come out very regular on time. Cool. And it is, it's very interesting what you're saying about if you think about the old style of business model, you would have to tie yourself to some company. They would have to put the money in 
right. Kickstarter is definitely, I mean, not even just think about comics, but you see it with sort of now with films that are being made. Oh, yeah. People producing albums, the ability to, to create something from at a much more simplistic level and see being made in something. Because, you know, if I, I'm thinking back to when I was like a, a young child, if someone had said to me to make a comic book, all I would think is, well, I'm going to have to go to one of the big producers. Well, I wouldn't have right. thought that I was a child. They wouldn't have twigged with me. But when I was younger, you would think the only way to do it is to hope to God that Marvel or DC would go, yeah, we, we like that idea, you know. Yeah. One fourth, multiply, make more sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> multiply, right. Um, well, and I think that's a good way to look at it, you know. And I, I think that for many of us as writers – for example, in myself, I've been writing short stories for years and submitting them to publishers and honestly had very little success with doing it that way. I might have had one published back there, but not really a correct model to pursue. Where the thing about using your Kickstarter, you reach out directly to the people who are the fans of the type of thing you are doing. So it has a twofold benefit for the creator. First off, it helps you to grow your audience. You find out what people Think of the material and, you know, it helps your audience to get bigger. The second thing is that you get a very direct feedback, whether it's a good product or a bad product, because your fans will, hey, well, I kind of like this one better than the other one. Or it's, it's a very immediate uh, knowledge. My guess, if you released a book to a publisher, it might be several years till you heard if they even liked it or if it sold well, if you even heard at all. Yeah. So, you know, Kickstarter, generally speaking, you'll know within the first 30 days, you know, hey, I've got a hit here. And what a lot of us have done, uh, you know, like I say, we use the Kickstarter for the production costs and I do my print runs that way. So when I go to, say, a Baltimore comic convention, I have all my books in print for sale, which has essentially been funded through the Kickstarter closing. And with regard to the work you're doing with Kickstarter and your comics, how do you go about working and forming the team of people you will collaborate with to put into production? That's a great question. One of my things is I do it a little bit differently. I, you know, I have never had an agent or uh, I guess you could say I haven't really had formal training. So what I had done for the very first issue I wrote, this was back in 2014, 15. There was a company called CAE run by a man named Martin Dunn. He's a musician also. But one of the things they did, they had a feature called the bullpen. And if you had a script, they would sit down with you in sort of a workshop setting and they would sort of work with you to teach you the ropes of how to make your script into a comic book. And this was things like pairing you up with artists and inkers and letterers and colorists. And they kind of like walked you through the process. So I did the first one and I kind of. You know, I pay attention to things as I'm doing it. And I, I remember thinking to myself, oh, boy, this isn't that hard. I, I could probably do this myself without a publisher, right? And then when it came time for the second issue, I started looking through Facebook was one of the sites. And there used to be a website called Upwork, and you could hire freelance artists through it. It is now called Guru.com. But I still would recommend it. You basically can look through maybe you know, a hundred people and find the exact art style that you're looking for. And then I would reach out to them directly. And I would say something like, Hey, my name's Tim Fling. I got this new book coming into production. Generally, I show them a copy of the last book to give them an idea that I'm reasonably serious. <laughs> and then they do some test pages. And in my method, I always do eight test pages to test the storytelling and to see if the artist is really getting the vision, right? Because many of these books, uh, they're always at least 24 pages. Most of mine are 48. So you're getting into a pretty big project. And I always want to find out – well, I put it this way. If it is not going to click, I want to know right away. Yeah. yeah. And you know, when, when we go into the room, and I'm, I'm a, I hope it doesn't sound over – dramatic but we gave that example of you know lennon and mccartney they sit down that lightning strikes i've noticed in working with an artist there is definitely a feeling of lightning striking when you have the right one and I, of course i've been working lately with erwin arosa on our new book and i tell you he's the kind of guy you can send a script or even just talking a little bit over the phone and he's oh i got it man i got this terrific idea i can't wait to show you he's very inspirational in the way that he approaches it and i'm lucky I'm blessed, really, to have a partner like that because I feel the best efforts are always collaborative, right? Like I could write the best script in the world, 
but if the artist says the camera angle's wrong and the character designs don't quite jive, no one's going to like the book. So you need to find that synergy, right? You've got to find that lightning striking. And honestly, it's kind of hard to find to find that person. I, I've gone through a couple, which I won't mention here, but it really just didn't didn't click. And in relation to the work you've done and, and have been doing, what impact, because this is the big thing at the moment, the, it's an impact upon everybody is the COVID situation. Mm. What sort of impact has that had on on your ability to do the work has it had any positives because most people would look just at negatives you know in my case i was very lucky during COVID. the first thing knock on wood nobody i knew got sick so that's the first lucky thing the second thing i was actually during that time uh, in the states they put us on lockdown which was probably about a, it was just about a two month or a three month period and we were paid unemployment during that time so for my case, I said, well, I'm going to make the most of this time. And I did two things, which was uh, doing a little bit of songwriting. You see, this is a pattern with me, obviously. And the oh, second good. thing is, yeah, the I second think, thing was. See, I think, but you're using the time productively. So that's never yeah, a bad thing. Yeah. Well, and uh, during that time, I also wrote the next two scripts for the upcoming books, which one we're seeing here is Lost at Sea, which has just been released. And there's one for next year, which is about. Well, that's about 50% finished already. Excellent. No, I'm glad so I was it, able it, to. It was helpful. You know, you could do something with it. Uh, for me, James, I will say it was a positive for me. And I, I hope that's okay to say that. I know that some people really went through some, some tough things. Um, knock on wood, it was not tough for us. And I haven't lost anybody. And that we didn't. I had one friend that got sick, but he got better. He wasn't too bad. No, I'm glad to. I mean, I. Got it. Unfortunately, I had the the COVID thing absolutely knocked the stuffing out of me. Uh, but I'm glad to see where it has been been of of use and allow people to do things where they've been able to actually, you know, better the situations and create things from it. And right. I guess with some people, they've probably even ended up in where it's maybe influenced the work. Uh, oh yeah. Which would you know, which is I guess understandable uh, in a difficult. You know, any difficult situation, people will generally build something from it and they can get something good. That's right. That that's the thing that's always beneficial. So with regard to the work you do, the comics you produce, how do you choose your subject matter? Well, in my case, uh, first I should mention I have a cousin and he's an animator uh, for for Nickelodeon. He's actually done very well for himself. He's a director now. And for years, we had been trying to work on something together, and it was designed to be an animated script, uh, something along the lines of – do you watch the TV show Futurama? Do you know it? I know it, yeah. 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 It's a little bit of a science fiction comedy, and it, our first script was a little bit like that, and basically what you do is you take these scripts and you go to what they call pitch meetings and it's a meeting with the network people and there'll be you know five or eight people in there and everybody's got an idea and they sort of pitch it in this sort of rapid fire setting mm -hmm. but you know i'm not any kind of a producer or director and i don't have any big names in my camp so i i didn't get too far on the pitches every time i got pretty close but i never had a series made but when we got to i guess 2015 i started to say you know what I could make a great comic out of this, and I've always loved comics my whole life, and I've loved art, and I kind of already knew that I'm not really a superhero uh, type guy so much. My tend to be post-apocalyptic adventures, and they're people that are trying to survive in unusual situations, but nobody has x-ray vision or anything like that. Now, the one caveat, a lot of my characters do have some kind of robotic or cybernetic enhancements. So, you know, I talk out of both sides of my mouth, right? There are some elements that are a little far-fetched, but it isn't you, – you won't see anybody with capes or uh, anything like that. It, they're, they're science fiction stories. Not too far removed from – I was always inspired by Isaac Asimov, Ray Bradbury, Harlan Ellison, Richard Matheson, and they tend to be sci-fi stories that are a little scary, and then at the end, there's sort of a little bit of a twist or a lesson. Yeah. So all my stories have a little bit of a twist at the end or a lesson, not too different from uh, 
would you be familiar with EC Comics from the late 40s and early 50s? These are the horror titles. Those old horror I'm titles. No, no. Uh, no. Yeah, I know that's not too much of a UK thing, but essentially they are what I would say they're horror stories with a twist ending. You know, on the last mm. page you find out, oh, the wife was already dead. She was dead the whole time. She's getting <laughs> revenge. Stuff like that. And they made those into a couple movies called Creep Show. I don't know if you're familiar with the movie Creep Show. I love Creep Show. By the way, that is a, a full-fledged EC uh, uh, experience. So if you like that, you'd like those old books. Right. God, I love Creep Show. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I think it's so neat when they have, you know, they set up the story and sometimes they can even be fairly normal or y- you might think they're even kind of yeah. boring. But then you get to that last page and they got a shocker for you. Right. So that, that's something I've always enjoyed in the stories. No, that uh, yeah. Wow. Right. I'll, I will definitely see if there's any way I can find that sort of stuff. So if, it, if Creep Show has has been influenced by that very that much would definitely definitely grab my attention yeah god yeah that's interesting to, i will have to definitely look those up i was gonna i was always thinking tim when it comes to so like the work you're producing if you could well two part this one as they say if you could work with anybody from the past who would it be and if you could work with anybody currently who would it be oh this is a hard question but i guess i would say for the person from the past as a writer I would almost say I have to work with Jack Kirby, right? Uh, the king, you know, with the Marvel method. He was the kind of guy you could sit down. And, of course, I read this from interviews. I did not know any of these people. But you sit down and you say, hey, I've got these great concepts. And he pulls out a great big board and starts fleshing them out. And, you know, they kind of did it all together. It was a little bit like a jam session, right, which I think I yeah. would like. Yeah. So, you know, maybe he has a great idea. Oh, let's work that into panel five. And, you know, what? maybe it'd be cool if he came through the window right here and you sort of make it together. That's what they call the Marvel method. That's kind of neat. And I would say for my modern person, there's so many good ones. But I would say I would go with one of the Titans, somebody like a Todd McFarlane, mm-hmm. you know, somebody like that that has so much skill and so much to offer. And one of the reasons why I picked Todd is, of course, he's a toy maker as well. And one of my yeah. dreams down the road, I would love to have action figures made out of some of my characters. And we've been checking on the feasibility of that. That is something we're going to try and offer our next Kickstarter if we can. That now that does sound very cool. So on, yeah. when it comes to, t- I've got to ask, when it comes to Todd stuff, what's your favorite sort of work he's done? Because Spawn's the big one, everybody. I, I would knows. say it's it's probably Spawn. I have been following most of his stuff, and I'm a big big Image fan. So I should mention I like all the Image books. But I think the main thing that's making me gravitate to him is, you know, the McFarlane toys. I've been following that. And, you know, some of the detail on these toys and the love and care that they put into the craftsmanship of these plastic figures, it's it, some of them are mind blowing. And it is amazing when you now look at the and I have I collected a few of this, a few of these sort of figures, not Todd stuff, but like. I was just thinking about when you talk about the way figures have been put together. If you look at, say, the stuff that when toy, toys first came out of, say, Batman stuff, it was never anything like the level you see now. Oh, right, it's just right. unbelievable stuff. Yeah. It's just like, it, it's mind-blowing. When you go yeah. into certain shops, like, say, Forbidden Planet, you look at some of the stuff, and the detail is just yeah. unbelievable. The price yeah, and- tag, unfortunately, is on some of it as well. <laughs> Well, in some of these, you know, there's a company, I believe it's Hot Toys, does yeah. the ones, the characters from the movies, and they're, uh, it's their likeness. You yeah. know, it's like if you look at the action figure, it looks like Scarlett Johansson or yeah. Robert Downey. I, I, the level of detail just blows my mind. It is. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. But if you, if, you know, if you can kickstart somebody else, stuff, that'd be, I'd be really interested to see. Well, and that's what we could try and do. You know, the thing about the Kickstarters is really the sky's the limit. If you have the idea and you can reach the correct backers, you can make your project. Uh, my only, my only hesitation why I haven't done it yet is because I don't have any experience with making action figures. But people remind me, hey, you didn't have any experience making comics when you started either. And this is going to be, what, the eighth one or the ninth one. So I think I'm, I might be ready to try something with an action figure. Well, I, I don't see any reason why not. I mean, you've had <laughs> success. I can't see you not having success on it, Tim, because you've managed yeah. to 
do it with all the other stuff, even if it's things you've not sort of initially been that that to say known for. It's all all worked well for you. When it comes to comic production, I always like to ask this of people, um, or any kind of thing when they produced it. If you could, if if you 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 manage to time travel, you can go back, like the film yesterday where the guy was taking care of the Beatles stuff. If you could yeah. go back and have been the person who created anything, what would it have been? Well, you know, historically, I love historical questions. For me, the big turning point for comics was publication of the Fantastic Four, number one, in 1961. And the reason why I say that, of course, comics had been around for years and enjoyed by millions and not particularly a new medium. But when the Fantastic Four came out, they were the first one that had a slight element of realism, and their problems were real-world real world problems. And I think that makes a more engaging script. Um, you know, for example – and by the way, sometimes I, I compare two companies. I'm not making fun of any one company. I love both. But there's a great example. If you looked at DC in the late 50s and early 60s, the Superman stories were things like, well, he might have ate too much ice cream and he was the fat <laughs> Superman. Or he might have – Lois might have uh, stolen his – like they were a little bit silly, right? But then, you you know, you look at the Fantastic Four and it's – well, uh, Reed's wife has fallen in love with Namor, the submariner, and now they're getting divorced. And the thing and the human torch are fighting. They hate each other and they're on the same team. I remember thinking, wow, this is really cool. This is a little bit more like a family, you know? And that is what kind of got me started on that. And I do try to promote that in my writing, meaning especially for books that are team books. I always think there should be an element of conflict within the team. I think it's way more realistic if characters don't like each other because that's kind of how it is in life. And, you know, they don't necessarily have to fight or anything in every issue, but they should disagree enough to where there's drama. When you mentioned the Fantastic Four, I'm intrigued. Did you see the Josh Trank Fantastic Four film? I did. Did it make you want to pull your eyes out as much as it did mine? (laughs) I didn't like that film. And I think that it's a really it's a terrible film. And I think that some of that my understanding is that for that poor, unfortunate director, he had the studio interfering with him quite a bit. And I could even I don't necessarily mind when people change the source material. I think that's how you can create great things. But I think he was kind of caught in the crosshairs between trying to create his own new original take and the studio saying, oh, no, you've got to follow the sort of like this formula. And I think the movie suffered because of that. Yeah, I mean, I was it was it, it, well, the, it's one of those sad things where you were saying that you could see where the studio had stepped in. And I remember watching uh, the Justice League, the first iteration we got, of, right. you know, falling from Batman vs. Superman. I mean, like when you watch the Fantastic Four Josh Trank one, there was we could got some of the reshoots were like the most blindingly obvious stuff ever known to man. But you saw that when they did the when Joss Whedon's take on Justice League came out, because right. you could see well the reshoots were done there. But when you actually saw the vision, and it'd be interesting they've allowed Trank to do this when you actually whatever his vision would have been. So if you look at when it came to Snyder's Justice League. To me, that was just blew my mind. I just absolutely loved it. And I'd seen the Whedon one. I was like, yeah, this ain't working for me. I remember coming out of the cinema and just thinking, this is not working for me. Whereas Stranger People, I saw it, we liked it. But, you know, each to their own. But, yeah, you're right. You unfortunately saw the big thing where obviously the studio had intervened and sort of stepped on him right. and said, you will do it this way. And, and you know, yeah. uh, I'm tempted to say I think his vision could have worked yeah. I mean, we don't know because he really didn't go the whole way. But, you know, you think about some of the elements and they were – I'm going by my memory, so let me know if I get part of this wrong. But so the thing was going to be sort of like a body horror element, like he was trapped in yeah. this body. And, you know, I think that might have worked and that might have played well. And then his original idea was Dr. Doom, which the end version that they came up with was really not satisfactory. But I guess they were trying to make it like he was imbued with some kind of energy from this cosmic zone. Like the idea could work. Mm. I, I just don't think it was executed right. No, I, d- I definitely agree. I just remember watching you thinking, this is strange and not you – know, <laughs> in a positive way strange <laughs> and you know and there were some things you, you kind of scratch your head like why didn't do they do this like uh for example like they, you know they should have showed doom in latveria and you know his people and like they veered away from that angle of the story and i felt that would have really grounded it and made it better so that was an unusual choice 
And like I say, there was also the, you know, the Fantastic Four were a little bit, they never really gelled as a team, which to me, what you want to do in your first act, you start out, nobody's getting along, they hate each other, right? Then the second act, they go through some kind of a conflict. Then the third act, they're a team and they're all putting their hands together. And I didn't get that feel really from the Fantastic Four. Yeah, it it just felt like it's one of these things where it had been taken away from and rushed and they'd made demands on what it would become. I'm intrigued. Have you what do you think the, the new Batman film will be like? Have you have you seen the trailer to that? I have you're and, and you're, I'm kinda of rooting you're probably, for it. You're probably the only person who's in who works in your field that I've actually really been able to ask that question to. So you, you do you think it'll be okay? So I kind of do. Uh, you know, I, I like Robert Pattinson, if I'm saying his name right. I know that he's got a little bit of uh, depth to his acting that a lot of people haven't seen because he's primarily known for Twilight, which, by the way, my daughter loved that movie. It, you know, it wasn't for me, but, you know, for the right segment, it was a very popular movie. I think that Batman is ready for a reboot. I think that it's it's time. The only hesitation I would have, like, it, it doesn't seem to be really... What's the right way to say this? You, you want to reinvent the character a little bit each time. And it looks like the angle they're going for is sort of a dark, disturbed Batman in a gritty Gotham City, which, you know, that's been done, you know. So I, I'm not sure what new direction they could take that. You know, you didn't ask me this question, but I'll answer one. If they asked me to make a Batman movie today, you know what I might consider doing? Rewinding the whole way back to 1948, maybe 52, and doing one of the wacky stories where they're trying to stop a giant toy maker from, <laughs> you know, just go really silly with it. And I, I think that audiences might buy that because it's so different than what they think Batman is. That, do you know, I never thought of that, but that might. Yeah, like, think about, uh, are you a it's fan so of The Incredibles? But you're you know right, it's so different. God, that's a good idea. I'd never thought of that, but that's you're right. That's so different. That could really work. Yeah, and c- kind of silly, and have Robin, and you know. Yeah, I mean, I know The Incredibles. It's not something I've particularly seen. I mean, the the thing I have with the only concern I have about the Batman film that's going to be coming out is I really did. I'll, a lot of people did, didn't, but I really like the way Affleck did it. I like that take on. Hey, James, I will tell you, since we're on the same page, one controversial thing about me, my favorite Batman movie is the Affleck version. I know I'm probably the only one saying that. <laughs> I didn't care for the Chris Nolan version. Wait, I, did I say that right? Yeah, that was Christian Bale. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for two reasons, and I'd love to share those. I think Christian Bale was a great Batman. I think his acting is terrific. I think he was a great choice, but he wasn't given a whole lot of screen time as Batman. It could have been more, I felt. And the second thing was there was a lot of exposition. It was the last one. It was like three hours and 15 minutes, something like that. And I think Batman was was 30-some minutes worth of screen time. It's just too much movie and not enough Batman. Like I say, if it was reversed up to me, I would completely undo all of that stuff, and I would do it – You know, I'd burst right in the first page, and Batman's trying to stop a dinosaur that came – from a spaceship something really silly you know and uh, i'm exaggerating a little bit to make the point but i think audiences might grab that yeah i mean i where i really like to with bat with you know we'll, i'll go with batflex as for the nicknamed him but it just the, sh- the fact that you looked at him and i was like yeah i'll buy this guy's bruce wayne yep, to me he's yep. like the comic version of bruce wayne and he um, had the right voice yeah, and when I looked at him as Batman, the sheer size of the guy, I was like, yeah, I could buy that he would be going out beating the, the snot out of criminal sort of thing every <laughs> right, night. Right. And it also, I like the fact that you saw the really damaged, scarred psyche. I mean, you saw what sort of complete mess, but, you know, mentally the guy yeah. would be. And that may be more visible in the Batman with uh, Pattinson. Cause they're saying they're going to show him being like really messed up and possible medication stuff. So I don't know. I'm I'm very tall on it. I really did not like the way they made Pattinson's costume look. But on the second trailer, I was like, okay, looks a bit better. But you you kind of touched on this. I looked at it and thought, I've kind of seen this before though. It doesn't feel like a majorly different a new take. Yeah, and th- this is – I could be wrong here, but my guess is if you're going to reboot Batman every 
four or five years, basically, there should be something a little bit different each time. There is in the comics. You know, they, mm. they reboot it a little bit different each time in the comics. And, I, you know, I, I like the dark world and I like the gritty superheroes, but I like to remind people that's not for everybody. You know, that's yeah. why there's so many different kind of books, right? And if anything, most of the books kind of lean away from the gritty. You know, we went through the 80s and early 90s when everything made that trend. Hey, it's all gritty and everybody's this suffering, tortured hero. <laughs> but I think, you know, we've sort of done that, right? And it's time for new stuff. And what inspires people and what uh, my example that I would give in writing is I'm trying to generate something with more emotional content, meaning that when you read it, you go, oh, man, that was pretty heavy. It's not necessarily people hitting each other, maybe people learning something about themselves or through the course of the story, they're transforming somehow. They're becoming something that they weren't in the few, first few pages. And that's easy for me to say. I'm probably not going to get asked to write the next Batman script. But if I was asked, this is that's what I would do. I would make it a little bit silly at not, when I say silly, you know, uh, zany, I guess is a better yeah. word. And also I would work in emotional content to where people cared about the characters and what they were doing. When you say about not writing it, it's Batman, Tim, never say never. <laughs> it may happen. You know, it just if it, if it keeps going the way it's going, I, you know, I, I'd like to tell anybody out there listening that if they're thinking about writing a book or writing comics or or making songs on an album, these are all things you can do. Ignore everybody saying that you can't do it and start your Kickstarter today. I will help you. Send a message to Tim and I'll help you get rolling because one of the things about the Kickstarter community, and I'm still learning this now, I'm somewhat new to Kickstarter, but it's a very inclusive and supportive community. And what you'll find is every person I've stumbled across are like, hey, well, let me help you out. Maybe we can team up. Maybe there's some synergy we can generate. As a matter of fact, I had one this morning, um, a nice guy writing a medieval uh the story wise, it doesn't necessarily fit with what I'm doing, but art wise, it did. And I said, hey, let's do this. We'll, we'll team up. We'll do a swap together. He loved the idea. So now we're going to have my futuristic book and his medieval book. It's set up so that if you buy one, you get the other one free. I mean, you preempted my question almost. Well, you did, no, almost you did preempt it, which was about giving advice to people. But it's a really good point you just made about the thing of helping people, because when we when I watch you on Reels and Heels, you're talking to Dre and both of you yeah. were, were talking to each other about how you could help each other. And I, I spoke to Dre a week, was it a week or so ago doing the sort of thing we're doing now. And he was saying the same thing. Oh, it's about doing your utmost to help people. And yeah, it is yeah. also, I guess, about making the taking the steps and trying something that's a bit different. Because thinking about myself, if I would not spoke to somebody I was a friend with who said, well, we've got a radio show, but we need some through the continuity links. Mm. We like your voice. Will you do it? I probably wouldn't be doing stuff like this. So it is about <laughs> just, right. just seeing what you can do to work with people and help people in producing great things. So I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you a, a different question when we talk about trying different things. So we discussed music initially. I want to know what's the best gig you've ever been to. And what's the worst gig you've ever been to? Oh, you're going to love this. So I'll, I'll start with the best one because this is a pretty good one. Uh, back in 1988, uh, I was a professional musician at the time playing for this metal band. And they had a thing here in town called the Battle of the Bands. And it was at the York Fairgrounds. And they had probably, uh, I bet you there was 3,500 people there. It's an outdoor amphitheater. It's basically mm -hmm. a racetrack that they converted into a place where you can have a concert. And I tell you, I had never, we'd played clubs and things, but, you know, a couple hundred people. I'll tell you, the first time I came out and I saw 3,000 people looking back at me, James, I thought I was having a dream. It was a surreal experience. And I couldn't believe that those, I couldn't believe they were there to see us. Like I kept. Expecting it to yeah. be a prank, right? So we played our set. It was probably six or maybe 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 five or six songs. I think it was 10 bands that played that day. And I, I live in York, Pennsylvania. It's very much a heavy metal town. So, uh, you know, the other bands were like there was a country band and there was a jazz band and there was a few different things. Well, we won pretty much hands down and people were screaming and carrying on. And I just thought that was the zenith of all my experiences. Right. And I got interviewed by the news and got a little record contract and stuff like that. 
So surely that's what it's all going to be, right? Well, no. About two weeks after that, we went to a gig down in Virginia. And I forget the name of the club, but it was not really a club. It was a place that sold pizza during the day. And at night, they would have bands, right? And we got in there. And I'm not kidding. There might have been four people in there. (laughs) And we're like, well, hey, we're looking for the place that's having the concert. And she looked at us and said, you're here. This is the place. Oh, you know, and. It's funny. It's it's kind of the great humbling experience, right? Because here we just came from 3,500 people. That night, we set all of our gear up and we played for three hours for four people who were eating pizza. <laughs> four people. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah, that's it, it really something. And, you know, again, it's, it's a funny thing because especially in music, you still got to do your best, right? Maybe one of those people's a record agent. Maybe he's Maybe he has a podcast. Maybe he you know, maybe he works for Spotify. You just never know. So you know you still got to do your best. And did were the people were the even though it was only four were they still receptive? Were they happy? No, were they, none whatsoever. No, they were just, they were just there to eat pizza. Nobody even acknowledged. It was like we weren't even there. <laughs> oh God. Oh well. So that was an experience. But the best thing is you still gave them your best possible gig and yeah, you didn't sort of like back down and go, you know, sod it sort of thing and walk uh, off stage. Right, right. So. And, you know, as, as I like to say, it's also it's the great equalizer because you don't want to get it in your head that you're going to always be playing for a thousand people. That happens very rarely. So it was kind of like, oh, hey, on, on, on Tuesday, we're the superstars on Thursdays. We're nobody, you know, so it was really a lot of fun. What's what would you say is uh you, with, with regard to the, the, the work on comics, because I always like to find out what people's, if it's anything, anybody who's a producer of anything, I always want to know, what is their interaction with the fan base like? I'm very lucky. I got a really good one. Uh, you know, I started on this first book about uh, the first Kickstarter, excuse me. That was in 2019. And uh, which was the Hunchback book. Were you familiar with that one? I'll have to I'll send you a free copy if you didn't have that. Thank you. But no, I am familiar. Yeah. Yeah. And it was surprisingly well accepted. And because this was my very first one and I had no idea what to expect. Okay. well, people started writing to me. And when I say people, some of them were authors whose names I recognized and respected. And they were saying things like, hey, did you write this thing? He goes, I don't know why this doesn't have a thousand backers on Kickstarter. This is the best book I've seen this year. And I went, whoa, okay, like that surprised me. And of course, the Kickstarter did fund. I'm not at the level where I have a thousand backers. But people started writing to me and I realized, oh, I've got a little bit of a fan base here. So I created a it's a MailChimp account is what it is. You familiar with MailChimp? I've not heard it's, of it, no. it's an email uh, system where you can create custom emails with graphics and they look very professional and uh, very slick. And I use it just for communicating with people that have backed my projects. And so I started doing that. And then I got to the second Kickstarter and, you know, just a little note. Hey, guys, this is Tim. I want to let you know I, I wrote another book. Thanks so much for supporting me. It'd be great if you came again. Well, man, didn't they all come back for the second one? Right. And I was like, whoa. And I thought, well, that's probably a fluke, man. The first two were pretty good. And th- this is my third one coming up. And I think I got probably I think I might have 80 percent of my people coming back every time. Brilliant. Yeah. Really? So what they say when you do that, of course, you're doing something right. But what I got to do, see, is what you and I talked about to grow, to grow the yeah. brand. And, you know, each time I've done that, I have it's a little bit bad luck to quote on the Kickstarters, but I'll, I'll give you a little bit of what I'm guessing. So I did the first one and I think that was 60 couple backers. And that was I think it did 2300 U.S., which not bad. I was it was I was looking for a thousand. And then the second one, I raised the goal to fifteen hundred. And that one did 3,300 at 90 backers. And now this current one, I believe I'm tracking 4,000 and I'm hoping to hit 100 backers. So we're growing about 20, 30 percent each time. So I'm very pleased with the progress. If I can get to 100 backers, I'm going to do something special. I I don't know what yet, but I'll I'll include you in that, James. We'll we'll, we'll do something cool. (laughs) I'll keep the fingers crossed. And and what I would say is you've got anything you want to promote or discuss at any point, just drop me a line and we'll we'll see what we can do for that. So if you – it's a strange one to ask, but I do like to ask this question. You could swap places with anybody, B. This you know that is past. A, this could be past. This could be present. Future is going to be a tough one, but it, 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. I saw that question. I'm not really sure how to answer it. I'll answer this with a saying that I heard. I'm not sure that I would swap with anybody, and I'll tell you why. Have you ever heard the expression, if we all took all our troubles and all our problems and we got together and threw all of our problems on a pile, when you looked down and saw everybody else's problems, you'd run in and get your own back. <laughs> I've never heard that, but that's really good. <laughs> Oh, and you, yeah, I hope you like that one. And I say that from the perspective of, uh, you know, we'll just add a little bit of personal information. Like I say, I was the owner of this comic board, had this comic store and had this kind of terrible divorce. And I, I came out of that, James, and I wasn't quite right. I was suffering from some depression and I, mm-hmm. I didn't didn't quite bounce back the way I wanted. But what I found is, is I started to pursue the things I like like happiness started to come to me. I didn't have to look for it. So I found myself in a position in my life where I have fulfillment in what I'm doing. I found a girl I loved and I married her and I got this great son. I'm blessed, my friend. I don't think I would trade at this. You know, we we all want to have more money, right? (laughs) If I could do that, I would, you know, maybe trade with someone rich. But the the thought of me giving up these uh, gains that I've – and when I say gains, I mean uh, personal and psychological gains. When I talk about giving them up, I I almost get – I don't want to give them up. I like where I am now. (laughs) So I don't think I I would switch. I think you're pretty giving me one of the best answers I've ever heard. And you, you <laughs> no, but seriously, because that you've you put a proper perspective into it, and you've looked at all the positive things in your life and said, "Yeah, I ain't yeah. gonna get rid of that." And you're right, because you you've got all the you've got all the things that make you Tim Fling that are brilliant, and you love and enjoy, and you've got a wonderful family. And why would you get rid of that? Right, why right. Would you do bod on. I I do think that's absolutely brilliant, and probably the best answer I've ever. <laughs> so far heard actually i buy down to you on that so what is the future for you in your work what what's coming down the pipe as they say man i have two great things coming uh we have had you know to go through the the history of what we've been writing we have the hunchback book then there was water wars one then water wars two then the lost at sea book which is currently on kickstarter and there's actually two that are completed that are still in the pipe which they're I hope you wouldn't think I was exaggerating. They are beautiful. You know, we have really put some quality and some love into these next two issues. So that's Water Wars number three, featuring the Brazilian super artist by the name of Renan Shodi. And that I'm definitely recommending to people who like uh, illustrated storybooks. And in the UK, are you familiar with the magazine Heavy Metal? Yes. Okay. Yes. If you like that type of magazine, you will love this next issue. That's kind of the feel we were going for. They're finely rendered, uh, illustrated science fiction tales with kind of like a you know an adult theme. And then the one right after that uh, is called Call of the Cryptid, and that is uh, with Irwin again, who I worked with on Lost at Sea. This is a story about a young girl who, after being abducted by a UFO, she gains the ability to communicate with cryptids. Do you know what cryptids are? You're going to have to tell me. I do. That might be a U.S. phrase. When you get something in the back of your mind that you think, (laughs) I've heard of it, but it just ain't The cryptids would be uh, uh, legendary animals that have not been proven to exist, but everybody claims they exist. Things like Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, uh, the Yeti. Uh, the Flatwoods monster. And a lot of these are American. I guess Loch Ness is actually Scottish. But mm-hmm. what they are is they're monsters that could or possibly not be real. And in their in our story, the young girl, she gains the, the ability. She can communicate with them. And what she finds out is that she's sort of caught in the crosshair between this war between these two races of creatures. And it's very visually inventive. There's a lot of weird uh, – it's sort of a surrealist take if you like surrealism. Yeah, that sounds really good. You really seriously, you've got. I really want to. I really want to read that. Yeah, and <laughs> I actually, really th- this is not an idle thing. I, I'm probably about 18 pages in, like it's already in production. So I'll send you some some pictures of it, and you'd be like, "Whoa, you didn't tell me it was this yeah. cool." Because look, I, I'll be the first to tell you, I'm always very insecure about my writing and wishing it was a little better and trying to improve. But some of these artists that I've been fortunate enough to stumble across. Wow, these guys and girls are just killing it. I mean, it's amazing some of the work they're turning out, and I'm lucky to be affiliated with such great people. Just thinking about what that could be, what that comic could be. Yeah. The problem is my mind's going like, I 
God, I really am looking forward to seeing that because that, <laughs> that that really does sound like the sort of thing that I would love. Uh, the the sort of stranger the better for me. It's it's a, it's very weird. It's very weird. Then I what what's the the comment they always say? Take all my money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, and it's neat because every issue it kind of clicks all the boxes of the weird monsters. So we've got aliens, the Men in Black, Bigfoot's in it, the Loch Ness monsters in it, the Flatwood monsters in it. Uh, it, it just goes right down the list. Each issue has three or four monsters in it. And by the way, some of them are good and some of them are not. That's that's the whole idea. There is no way that, that our listener base is not <laughs> going to be intrigued on this one because this is the sort of thing we all love. And certainly Joanne, who I uh, who is one of the, the people I'm on this with, she's really into comics as well. So she both her and Jim are really, really apologetic. They couldn't come to, to do this with with us uh, for the for this evening. But it's been it's been educational, it's been emotional, and it's most important. This has been incredibly interesting talking yeah. to you. Uh, and I, we always sign off by saying, you know, I think we've been talking of Codswallop. The problem I have, Tim, is I could talk to you and talk to you and talk to you, <laughs> but Gemma would kill me because she does the editing and she always, always says to me, try and keep it for an hour, hour and a half max, <laughs> but don't Got go it. any further. But Got it. I'm hoping this has been as enjoyable for you as it has yes absolutely i just want to say quickly before we go thanks so much for having me on james and i'm just really honored to be here and anytime we want to do it in the future especially if you want to talk about music you got me i'd love it so uh once again i will just say tim thank you so much for coming on uh, i would just ask could you just tell some of the links that we where we can get you know where the listeners can look at you know look at your stuff Sure. The the two easiest ways to get a hold of me or to follow my projects, I'm on Kickstarter. That project is called Lost at Sea, just like it sounds. So if you just search on the Lost at Sea, you'll find it. It's the first one. And also, if you'd like to follow my website, it's earthdogstudios.com. That, uh, well, I'm sure we'll be straight on to it. I know uh, I am already on with some of those already. So, yeah. Without further to do, ado, whatever the hell the term is, I've never ever got it right <laughs> in all these years. Thank you so much. It has been an absolute honor and a pleasure. And Tim, I hope you have a really nice day. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, James.